Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And this morning we're going to talk about um, what is generally considered to be one of the most favorite conversation topics anyone has, namely submission. But actually... (laughs) We should never hesitate or feel like it's uh, a dirty word or or something we we don't want to get close to. We shouldn't be afraid of submission because it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. It's just part of life for everyone, inside and outside of the church. Well, let's read our text, and then I'm going to make two introductory comments before we get into our outline. Our text is verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 5, which says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, before we get into our outline, as I said, two, two things to mention or to clarify by way of introduction so that we can study this verse Uh, a little more freely. The first thing to say is that the younger persons to whom Peter addresses himself are not just young in age. They are those who are below the elders in the order of the church, namely the members of the church. This is not a, a general command for young people to respect those who are older than them. That is a true principle And it is something that ought to be followed by all people in all society. And if you think, the youth these days are not respectful to us like they should be, then that's the truth of every generation. And you can look in in newspapers and go back over 100 years and find that every generation thinks that the youth of their day are suddenly disrespectful. It's a fact, actually, that all youth are disrespectful. And they always have been, and they always will be. But that's not what Peter's talking about. That's not what Peter is saying, because the scriptures often use social or family language to describe the church. John, how many times does he say, little children, little children? Do we all exempt ourselves from John's commands because we're not little children? No, we know that there are different ways of speaking. And last, uh, two Lord's Days ago, when we looked at verses 1 through 4, we said, who are the elders? And we said, well, these are clearly people who have government over the church, and who at least some of them receive a salary from the church. So this can't be anyone who's past a certain age. That can't be what elders mean. Someone, it's not a, a referent just to age. Well, so also neither is you who are younger also just a referent to age. It's in the context of the church. It's in the context of the first four verses, which have elders who are over, who have charge of the church. And these are those who are in the charge of the elders. You who are younger. So Peter is directing himself to the membership of the church, to all Christians in the churches wherein they reside and are members. So that's the first thing by way of introduction, that the younger persons here, uh, although generally speaking there will be some who are by age younger, are not uh, just younger persons. They are the members of the church. And the second thing to address by way of introduction, and really this is review, is just a brief reminder of what it means to submit or to be in submission. 
And this is review because this is actually the, the fourth time that Peter is making this kind of command in this short letter. If you turn back with me to chapter 2 and look at verse 13, you'll see that Peter commanded us to submit or to be subject to human institutions. And so we talked about submission to government. In chapter 2 and verse 18, servants are commanded to submit or be subject to their masters. In chapter 3 and verse 1, wives are commanded to submit or be subject to their husbands. So as we come to chapter 5 and verse 5, and the members of the church are told to be subject or to submit to their elders, uh, it's important to simply remember what submission means. And submission is about order. Submission is about order. To be subject or to submit means that you know your role in an order and you fulfill your role or you keep your place in that order. To, to be subject is to know what your place is in an order and to fulfill your role in that order. Each person has a place and they do what belongs to their place, that is what it means to be subject or to be in submission. The word that is used commonly throughout the New Testament for submit comes from the word to order or to arrange, and to submit is here in this context to understand that you have a lower place in some order, and you need to fulfill your place in that order. So if you are commanded to submit, whether that's in chapter 2, verse 13, or in chapter 2, verse 18, or in chapter 3, verse 1, or in chapter 5, verse 5, you need to say, okay, there is an order, we're talking about an order here, and I have a place in it, and I need to fulfill my role in that order. And this is a very important thing to understand, because submission or being subject is therefore an active concept. We tend to think of submission as a passive role of when I'm commanded or when I'm told to do something, then I respond with submission, which is a very passive idea. And that, that really is just one small part of what it means to be subject or to be in submission. It's an active concept. I have a role. I have a place. I have a part. And I'm going to contribute. I'm going to do what belongs to me in this order. It's not merely passive willingness that's not true submission, or that's not at least fully uh, well-rounded submission. It's not just a passive willingness. It's an active participation. The natural question then is, what's my role in the order of the church? What's my role in the order of the church? And Peter doesn't go into any detail, does he? He just says, be subject. Be subject. Fulfill your role in the order of the church. And Peter's writing generally to multiple churches at once, so presumably the elders would give further teaching. Um, Pastor so-and-so, what did, what did the Apostle Peter mean when he said, be subject to the elders, and then they could give a fuller exposition? So that's what I'm going to do this morning, is to draw from the wider teaching of the scriptures to help us understand what our role as members is in the order of the church, so that we can say we are in submission, or we are subject, by knowing and fulfilling our place. So consider with me five points, and each of these points is a pair, all of which are answering the question, what is my role as a member 
in the church, which is the same thing as saying, how can I be subject to the elders of the church? Number one, the first pair, fulfill and follow. Fulfill and follow. When I say fulfill in this context, what I mean is to, to obey. To fulfill is to, to fully go through with something. To fully comply with what has been commanded. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, we read, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The command there is obey your leaders and submit to them. And notice it's obey your leaders, those who are keeping watch over your soul. So this is a formal arrangement, elder to member, and there is an obedience that is due from the member to the elders. The church has an order. And one of the things that church members owe to the elders above them in that order is obedience in the Lord. And we have to carefully define that, don't we? Why? Because we are talking about obedience or fulfillment in the context of the local church and specifically within the context of the local church. Two weeks ago when talking about the elders who have oversight of the church, we said they don't have oversight of anything and everything in people's lives. And so also, if they can't command you in anything and everything in your lives, you don't owe them obedience in anything and everything in your lives. We're talking about obedience in the context of the ministry of the word of God brought to bear upon a member with regard to their personal holiness. The context of moral and ministerial matters, that is the context within which members owe obedience or fulfillment to their elders. I am subject to my elders when I fulfill what they command, understanding that what they command ought to be drawn from the scriptures as a command to my conscience from God. They bring the law of God to bear upon me through their ministry, and I owe obedience to them because ultimately it's obedience to God when they bring God's authority to bear upon me. The obedience that we owe to pastors, <clears throat> excuse me, is ultimately obedience to Jesus Christ, whose ministers they ought to be. And when they command us beyond that or outside of that scope, we do not owe them obedience because they ought not to issue those commands, as we said two weeks ago. So Peter's not teaching you to obey and fulfill anything and everything that a pastor tells you to do. That's not their role in the order, so it's not your role in the order. But their role in the order, the pastor's role, is to exercise oversight over your holiness, and you must obey them when they confront your sin and call you to repentance. So to be subject to elders is to fulfill their commands in the context of the local church, specifically with regard to holiness, moral and ministerial matters. But it's not just to fulfill, it's also to follow. Follow. And I'm using the word follow here because what I have in view is not so much obedience in moral and ministerial matters, but compliance with general plans and order in the church. Two weeks ago, we also said that elders have not just, uh, as overseers of the church, they also arrange and order 
the, the general life of the church with wisdom matters. Decisions that could be made one way or another, but need to be made in one particular way so that we all do the same thing at the same time. And to, to follow them is simply to, to be subject, that when they call the assembly of the church at a certain time, that is when you are there and not some other time. And though those decisions themselves may not be moral matters, it is nevertheless necessary to follow them in those decisions in order to maintain order and unity. Uh, for example, uh, if, if the elders say, we're going to assemble at such and such a time, and someone says, well, they can't command me from God's word to assemble at that time, so I'm going, or we are going to actually assemble at this other time, that would be to not follow their leadership and to disunite and divide the church completely unnecessarily. And so if it's the elders' uh, authority and duty to, to guide and to lead in general matters of order in the church, then it is the responsibility of the members to follow them. And that's not an obedience of, my conscience is bound to do this, but rather it's, an, it's a compliance and a following uh, in actions. Even if one thinks there might be a better decision to be made in this, uh, for example, if the Spanish ministry meets at 8 a.m., <laughs> Some people might say, there's, there's probably a better time <laughs> to meet than 8 a.m., but actually I don't think there is, and, and uh, people are very helpful to follow in coming at 8 a.m. And so we may not always agree with some of the, the decisions that get made where there is liberty, but it's best to follow in those matters uh, for the good of the order of the church as a whole. But it's not that your conscience is being bound, it's that the actions of the church are being united by wisdom decisions. So as a member, how can I be subject to the elders? I need to fulfill commands that come from the word of God to guide and shape my holiness. And I need to follow the general order and the leadership of the elders in the church where they have legitimate oversight over wisdom decisions. Secondly, number two, esteem and encourage. Esteem and encourage. Members owe to their pastors an, an estimation, that is a respect, and a, a prizing or a valuing. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So there are those who are over us in the Lord, who admonish us and labor among us, and we are commanded to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. It is as ministers that we esteem them, and it is for their work as ministers that we esteem them. And so we need to make a, a distinction here, uh, and yet hope that it doesn't apply. Uh, let, me, let me explain. <clears throat> when we talked about submission to government, submission to employers and such persons, submission to husbands. We made a distinction between a respect for that person's position uh, and, a, and a respect for that person themselves. And so we ought always to have a respect for the position that is higher than us in the order. Think about government, something we usually don't want to do. We have a president and we have a governor and we have many persons who are above us in the order of the government. And it is our duty and responsibility to esteem and respect the position. I have a president and I need to honor and respect that president as my president and respect the office of the president. 
And yet we can make a distinction and say the office of president is worthy of honor and respect and submission, so to speak. But is the person who occupies that office personally abstracted from the office, is he worthy of honor and respect? I have my own thoughts on that. But the point is sometimes there's a difference between respecting the position and the person. And sometimes a rather dishonorable person occupies an honorable place. This happens in the, in the family, where the husband is indeed the head of the home. He is the head of the wife. His position is above her in the order of the family, and the wife owes a respect to the position. Ideally, the man himself would also be worthy of respect, the person, but not always. Now let's come to the church. We should hope, and it ought to be the case, that we don't have to make this distinction in the case of a minister. We ought to respect their position. We ought to esteem their position. Given the moral qualifications of a pastor, the person themselves ought also to be equally honorable, uh, dignified, and worthy of respect. But as members, you need to say, I need to esteem and respect the position of the pastors which is above me. And if they rule well and are fulfilling the qualifications, then the person themselves is also worthy of esteem and respect and honor. Indeed, Paul says to esteem them highly because of their work. And so those who are doing the work of the ministry and who are doing it rightly and doing it well are worthy of esteem, worthy of honor, and worthy of um, respect. Not just for their place, but also, Lord willing, for their person. And we ought to esteem them highly for their work. We said two weeks ago that we all have a race to run and our, our lane has obstacles. What's the lane of the minister? It's all the lanes. It's, it's helping everyone get to the finish line. And so such a person who's helping us get to the finish line of the race, the Christian life, we ought to esteem them highly for their work because it is such an honorable and good thing that they do for our good. Secondly, in this pair, we encourage we esteem and we ought to encourage. In that same place in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, Brothers, pray for us. Pray for us. Those who are over you need you. Those who are over you need you. The most submissive citizen, the most submissive worker, the most submissive wife, understanding sub submission properly as fulfilling your role in the order is the one whose actions support those who are above them in the order. They encourage them. They help them. They strengthen them. So also, the best church members or the most submissive church members are those who encourage those who are over them, who help them along. The elders are more able to care for you when you care for them. As we read already in Hebrews 13, let them do this, let pastors do their work with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. If you as a member make it so that the pastor's work is a groaning devoid of joy, it's no good for you. You're hurting yourself and others in the order when instead of encouraging the pastors so they can do their work with joy, you discourage the pastors. It's kind of strange to think, but at least in the realm of the pastor's work, 
the members of the church determine the quality of life of the pastor. This is an analogy, but if you run a business and someone asks you, was it a good day or a bad day, it depends on your clients, generally speaking. Well, for a pastor, was it a good day or a bad day? It depends on the members of the church. And so you ought to have a sense that it's, it's my job, it, one of my duties in, to be in submission is to, to contribute to the well-being of the church, to, to encourage the pastor through holding him up. But the thing I want to emphasize above all is that brethren pray for us. Brethren pray for us. This is not the point of the church is to make the pastors happy. That's not what I'm saying. There is a truth that the more the members are able to help the pastors do their work with joy, the better it is for everyone. But the pastor's joy is not the goal and the end here. So please pray. Something everyone can do, something all of the members can do, is pray for the pastors. You can do that every day. You can do that whether you see or don't see the pastors. You speak to them or not. You can pray for your pastors as a means to encourage them. And this church, I believe, has a, not I believe, I'm convinced, uh, has a, <clears throat> a very healthy culture of encouraging its pastors. So this, this is not a do better. This is please continue to pray for your pastors. And this is also not a tell every pastor that every sermon they did was the best sermon you ever heard. This is not a, you need to give constant, incessant feedback to your pastor about his preaching. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Yes, if a, if a sermon helps you, it's encouragement to the pastor to say, the Lord blessed me through his word that you delivered to us today. Praise God, that's good. This is not talking about build up your pastor so that they, they feel good about themselves. Pray for us so that we can fulfill our ministry and do it with joy. You can never say, we prayed too much for our pastor this week. <laughs> you can over-encourage a pastor with sermon feedback and this and the other thing. To, it can be too much, actually, not in the sense that it doesn't need to be that much. But you can't pray too much for your pastors. You can't pray too much for them. Encourage us by praying for us. Thirdly, contribute and care contribute and care. The third way in which members should be subject to the elders is by contributing financially to the church. Contributing financially to the church. And this is submission because it supports the, the order. The elders who are above you are freed to concentrate on the work of the ministry when they don't have to work another job to provide for their families. And this is not just a good idea because it supports the order. This is indeed a duty com commanded by Jesus Christ himself. Would you please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul's going to give us an example from the Old Testament and tell us that an analogous um, situation has been instituted and commanded in the New Testament. First Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Paul tells the Corinthians, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded 
that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Jesus has commanded that churches ought to support their pastors financially. And then turn over to Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. It says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Let the one who is taught, word, taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So you get a new car, pastor gets a new car. Just kidding. Paul says, it doesn't make any sense to have a farmer but not pay the farmer. You won't get a good crop from the farmer if you don't pay him, if he has nothing to live on. He's saying God's not mocked. If you, if you give nothing to God, you'll get nothing. Do not be deceived, but what you sow, if you, if you bountifully provide or sufficiently provide so that the man who teaches is able to focus on the teaching, the teaching is better and there's more of it. Now, here at our church, the church as a whole does not need to be exhorted to support its pastors financially. And this is not an appeal for a change in our budget. But perhaps you do need to be exhorted individually as a member of the church. Those who are taught the word are commanded by the Lord to share good things with the one who teaches. And as Paul says elsewhere, the laborer is worthy of his wages. The scriptures give us various reasons why we ought to contribute financially to the church, one of which is to support the pastors. That's one reason. And so I ask you, do you support the church financially? If you do, you are in submission. If you do not, you are not in submission. Now, how do we give? Well, as a minister, it's my place and role to bring God's word to bear on your consciences. And this is a command from Jesus Christ to contribute and support the church financially. Remember the first step, to fulfill. When God's word is brought to bear upon your conscience, when the law of God is, is brought before you by the minister of the church with the authority of God, your responsibility and duty as a member is to obey and to fulfill that command. I ought to give. But the question then becomes, tell me how much? Tell me how much. And so let me tell you, it is not a tithe. The tithe is not a moral obligation, and no one in the New Testament is commanded or obligated to give the tenth of their produce or the tenth of their goods to the church. So must you tithe? No. But you must give. To give is obligatory. To give the tenth is not obligatory for Christians. Now, is that not a helpful and useful way to give yourself something quantifiable? And is it not patterned after the Old Testament? And so do not many people do that anyway? Yes, it is a common practice, and it is one that is often recommended, but it cannot be commanded. To give is necessary. To give and support is necessary, but not to give the tenth. Now, what is also commanded in the scriptures is to give of your first fruits, not your leftovers. You don't say, well, 
we'll see at the end of the month what's left over for the Lord. You take of your first fruits and you say, I give the best of my flock to the Lord and I do it as an act of worship. I consecrate, I set apart as holy this portion of what the Lord has given unto me and I sacrificially present it to God in thanksgiving and praise because he has so bountifully given to me, I give to him. Now, for different people, that will look differently. Paul says, as the Lord prospers you. Some people are able to give more than others, but all ought to give cheerfully and not begrudgingly. Okay, I'll do it. Fine, if you say so. I guess I'm supposed to, but rather as a cheerful act of worship. The scriptures say the Lord loves a cheerful giver. We ought to give of our first fruits not our leftovers. We ought to give as a sacrificial act of worship, not as a a begrudging duty. And when we do this, we are being subject to the elders and fulfilling our place in the church. So contribute and care. Now we come to care. We are also subject to the elders when we care. And by this, I don't mean care about us. I mean when you care for one another. Isn't that a great relief Bear with me for using this analogy. Isn't it a great relief to parents when they overhear their children resolving their differences amongst themselves and it never gets to you? You say, I'm so glad that they're handling this on their own. And parents are thinking, I've never seen that. (laughs) What is this of which you speak? Well, sorry you missed it. The scriptures are full of one another passages. And the gifts that Jesus has given to his church, uh, gifts of biblical knowledge, gifts of counsel and advice, are not trapped and limited to the pastoral office. Those gifts reside among the men and women of the church also, in different measures. And so it is good and helpful when the members of the church care for one another and help one another. One of the reasons why this is so supportive to the order of the church is that it frees the pastors to focus on the more severe and difficult cases that require a great amount of effort and energy and attention. When the members are caring for one another, counseling one another, even at times correcting one another humbly in the Lord, this frees the pastors to help those who need the most help. This is not, don't bother me, fix your own problems. This is the more you are able to help one another, the stronger the overall order is so that we can handle the most difficult cases and the people who need the most help. So please don't hear this as, don't bother me, I'm in my study. But rather hear this as, we need to care for one another and love one another, and this strengthens the whole order, and the pastors are able to focus their efforts, not avoid the church, but focus their efforts on those who need it most. Do we expect the deacons to sweep every floor and stack every chair and put up every table because they're the deacons? No, of course, we help and contribute. So also do we expect the pastors to be the sole counselors of the church? No, because the gifts of counseling are not trapped up in the eldership. They reside among the membership and and, and we encourage you to use those to help one another. Uh, The Titus II groups are designed to facilitate this kind of older and younger men, older and younger women, brother to brother, sister to sister kind of caring, isn't it? But it's something we want daily or weekly Sunday fellowship to also support. Consider the process of Matthew 18. Your brother offends you, what do you do? Go to the pastors. No, you go to him first, don't you? And so 
Ideally, members resolve differences between themselves. But if you do not win your brother, then it goes to the pastors, right? Now, shouldn't pastors have the patience to listen and help, even in times where it probably didn't need to get to them? Yes, that's true. But as a member, you are in submission to the elders and fulfilling your role in the order when you care for one another. That is a great help to the elders. And not just in counseling, but also in practical matters, helping one another um, with, and, and our church does this so well, with providing food and encouragement and all kinds of things. So continue caring for one another, brothers and sisters. Peter said earlier, and keep on loving one another earnestly. That's what you need to keep doing, and that is being in submission. Fulfilling your role by caring for yourself and for others. This is good for you and for the church. Fourthly, consider and consent. Consider and consent. In the New Testament, we find that in church business, the elders lead and propose, and the members consider what has been proposed, and if they are persuaded that it is the right way to go according to scripture, then they consent. The elders lead and propose, the members consider and consent. And so I want to briefly uh, review the scripture proofs or passages where we see the participation of the congregation in church business matters. If we had more time, we could look at them in a little bit more detail. So the first item is reception of members. Why do we have a church vote from the congregation to receive new members into the church? Why can't the pastors just tell us, hey, here's the new members, FYI, you know, just so you know. Why do we ask the, the congregation to participate? Well, it's because in Acts chapter 10 and verse 47, when Peter brings the gospel to the Gentiles after he's had the vision of the clean and unclean animals and been told, don't make these distinctions, go to the Gentiles. Uh, he goes to the centurion and he preaches the gospel. They believe Peter, before baptizing the Gentiles, he stops and he asks, and he says, does anyone here of the believing Jews that had come with him, he says, does anyone here have a reason why we ought not to baptize these men? So Peter's leader, leading saying, I propose we baptize these men. These, not just men, these believers. Do you consent? Is there any reason not to? And that's how the leadership of the elders work in proposing new members or candidates for baptism. Is there any reason that we shouldn't baptize these people? And they say, no, 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 let's baptize them. Let's, let's indeed do this. So that's the reception of members. Uh, also in the election of officers. Last week, Pastor George preached from Acts 6, where it says in the proposal, pleased the whole gathering, pleased the whole congregation. The, the apostles proposed how to ordain new deacons. Uh, they didn't know there was such a thing as deacons. They're creating this office and the people for it as the apostles lead and the congregation consents. Uh, in Acts chapter 14, 23, it says, and they, Paul and, and Barnabas, I believe it's Barnabas, it says, and they ordained for them elders in every city by election. So the elders were ordained through the leadership of Paul but it was through a process of election, which involves the congregation. So election of officers, deacons and elders. And lastly, in disciplinary matters. Again, back to Matthew 18. Go to your brother. If you don't win him, go to the elders. If you, if you don't win him, go to what? Take it to the church. 
And if he will not hear the church, then regard him as a publican and tax collector, as a Gentile and a tax collector. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And when you are all assembled with my spirit in the name of Jesus Christ, commit this one to Satan. Is it something that just let the elders do it and they'll tell you? Or when you're assembled as a church, you all commit him to Satan. Do the elders excommunicate someone or does the church excommunicate someone through the elders? It's the whole church through the elders. So these are all the things that we vote for as members in the church. Reception of new members, election of officers, and disciplinary matters. In each of these cases, nothing happens until the matter has been proposed to the congregation and the congregation has consented, then the person is baptized or received, then the officers are are ordained, then discipline is effected. Now, your duty as members is to consider. When the elders propose something to you, you must consider what they propose in the light of the scriptures, and then to consent or not consent based on the teaching of the scriptures. If your duty was just to consent, then it wouldn't really be consent, would it? You say, blink to consent. Well, you can't help but consent at that point. Uh, It wouldn't be consent. So consider, and then, if persuaded, consent. If you have no argument from scripture to oppose what the elders have proposed, then indeed you should follow their leadership and consent, because your conscience should respond to God's authority in scripture above all. And if you just have no objection, then you should consent. But if because of the teaching of the scriptures, you're convinced that what has been proposed is wrong, then you should not consent. Now, what do I mean by that? Think about the categories we've already invoked. If you're convinced that a given member candidate is not a Christian, you should not consent. If you're convinced that an officer candidate is not qualified for that office according to the scriptural criteria, you should not consent. If you are convinced that a a candidate for discipline does not fit, that they are repentant, that this is not just or this is not accurate, then you should not consent. It's not about preferences. It's not about voting the way that democratic elections work. It's about convincing yourself, being convinced according to the scriptures. But you need to consider. How can you consent if you haven't considered? You see, don't get into the pattern of just rubber stamping what the elders tell you. Because in that way, we might as well just skip the congregationalism. (laughs) We might as well just skip the congregation if they're not going to consider what the elders propose. Shouldn't it be the case that the members have a, a sort of default trust in the elders and their leadership? Yes, I would hope so. And so I would hope that there would be a sense of, well, what they've proposed is probably reasonable and and thought through, but you still need to consider it. You still need to consider it. I hope that the elders' proposals are sufficiently warranted and argued, and they may even be self-evident in the very way that they are proposed. Okay, I'm convinced immediately that could be the case. But your duty is to consider, and having considered, to consent or not. Don't be led lazily. If you're led lazily, that's not the elder's fault. If they propose things to you and you don't consider it, that's your own fault. 
So take what the elders propose, consider it according to scripture, and consent if it is indeed according to scripture. And bear with me for for going through this a little bit longer. If you're convinced otherwise, you need to speak to the elders and tell them. They They may miss things. We're not perfect. We don't, make, we don't have perfect judgment, infallible judgment. There could be something we don't know. We could be wrong. And so it's good that the members, far before you get to the point of a vote, would say, Pastor, I'm, I'm very concerned because as far, if I'm understanding things correctly, as far as I can discern, this doesn't seem right for these reasons. And the pastor says, I didn't know that or I hadn't thought about that, uh, etc. So your input to the elders before you ever get to a vote, as you consider, is very important and of great use uh, to the pastors. If you've grown up in a church or spent time in a church where this kind of thing isn't done, then it may be something you need to learn how to do. You may be accustomed to, well, the pastors tell us there's new members, and the pastors just tell us about discipline, and the pastors just tell us about new candidates. Uh, I'm not used to this. Well, we we need to pattern ourselves according to the scriptures and perhaps learn something new. Or perhaps you have a sense of of fear because of pastors in the past who didn't want you to to give them an alternate opinion because they felt very threatened by that. Or the pastor in the past uh, of your experience perhaps was very much um, reticent. No, it's not your place to, to challenge me or something like that. Well, sure, members shouldn't challenge, but you have the right and you ought to have the freedom to to tell us what you think and to express yourself because, again, we could miss something. Or perhaps talking it through, there is a greater clarity achieved on either side. So I I trust and hope that our church has a healthy culture for this too and that members would feel free to ask uh, or to even challenge in the right way in the sense of that, that doesn't seem right to me. Are you sure about that? And that the pastors should be humble on their end to to consider on our side. And I believe that our church does, um, at this point in our life, have a good, healthy culture for this, where the members respect and honor the pastors, but also are willing to ask their questions and give their input, and that the pastors love and respect the members and are willing to receive those things and consider them. But it's, it's one thing if the pastor says, I think everything is great, if the members say, no, it's not really. So if you have concerns about things as, as we live the life of this church together, Bring them to the pastors. Speak to us. And let's work together in the order of the church to fulfill the will of Jesus Christ. Membership class dismissed. (laughs) Fifthly and lastly, this is a mini membership class, isn't it? Fifthly and lastly, assemble and adore. Assemble and adore. Peter says, be subject to the elders. But let's be sure that this is not an elder-centered sermon or an elder-centered church. The duty and indeed privilege of members and what supports the order of the church, the structure and the, the flow, is that we assemble ourselves together when the assembly is called. And why do we do this? To adore, to worship God. We just sang... Come, let us adore him. As we said, behold our God. This is why we're here. We're not here to submit to the elders as though that's the end. That's just a part of living the life of the church. We assemble ourselves when the elders call the assembly, 
because the elders are calling you and assembling you to adore God. They are also a lesser place in the order because we're all under Jesus Christ. We're all under God. And so we assemble ourselves and the elders assemble the church in order to lead to worship, in order to bring us all to focus on the one true living God whose power and presence is manifested in the church and in his instituted ordinances. And so as church members, it is my duty to assemble when the church assembles. And the reason why, among many, many reasons, is so that I might join the saints and add my voice to the worship and add my voice to the prayer, even if only in an amen, I am praying with the whole congregation to add my gifts and my abilities and my strengths to this church, to be there, to fellowship with the brethren, to partake of the same table with my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ by faithfully assembling ourselves and not neglecting the assembling of ourselves, as, as it says in Hebrews chapter 10, this is to be in submission to the elders who call the assembly, not for the elders' sake, but to adore and worship God to whom they call you. How can I fulfill my role as a member and keep my place in the order of the church? How can I be subject to the elders? I must fulfill and follow. I must esteem and encourage. I must contribute and care. I must consider and consent. And I must assemble and adore. And when we do this, brothers and sisters, with joy, because these are good things to do, then that order which Jesus Christ has ordained is maintained. And we can dwell peacefully and unitedly in the church. So let us do this with joy. And let us pray that the Lord would help us to do it and to give us joy in the doing of it, each one in their place, walking together towards that glorious inheritance that Jesus has won for us with his body and his blood and his powerful and victorious resurrection. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you create not chaos, but cosmos. You create order. You have given society a good order. You have given the family a good order. You have given to the church a good order. We pray that you would help each one of us to be faithful in our places, to be faithful in our callings, and to be joyous in it, not merely passively willing, but actively participating. Help us, Lord, to be humble, to be gracious, to be loving, and to do all things for the glory and honor of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' exalted name. Amen.